We're in Matthew chapter uh, 26, and um, <clears throat> we have finished off with the woman who came into the room and anointed Jesus for his burial because she's the one who got it. She's the one who understood that Jesus was going to die. The disciples didn't get it, no matter how many times he said it, but she got it. And so we're going to pick up in verse 20. They've set up the room now. Uh, they set up Passover. And we explained why just a couple certain ones went to set up the room and not Judas at the end of last week's teaching. Uh, verse 20 now picks up this way. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. Now I find that just fascinating for one big reason. Put yourself in that place. You're sitting around with 12 guys. I should say laying there. They actually lay on their left side. We'll explain that in a second. But there you are with the 12. You know one of them is going to betray you. You also know that the 11 other ones are going to run and hide and they're going to let you down. Now, would you, knowing these things, would you really have dinner with these types of people? I really doubt that you would, and I doubt that I would too. But here, Jesus, he's going to break bread with these people because he just loves everyone. <clears throat> he loves us even in our failures. Never forget that, friend, because the enemy can sure play in your mind when you fail. Verse uh, 21, it says, as they were eating. I like that because the Bible's filled with food and with eating. Did you know that in Luke, the gospel, about 20% of all the scriptures are, are connected to some type of eating or meal? Yeah, that's a lot. So if you think about that, <clears throat> um, you realize that Christianity is more about sitting around a table in fellowship than it is any other type of larger gatherings. The larger gatherings are fine. I'm not knocking those things whatsoever. But in verse 21, it says, and they were eating. Here's what he says. He says, and this is, this is going to be just like boom, you know. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, he didn't say a couple of you. He says, one of you will betray me. Now, they're sitting there. Now, if you were sitting there, can you imagine what, what would be your first thoughts when Jesus, who's already done a lot of things that have astounded you, he, they've seen him do miracles. They've even watched him when he read the minds of the Pharisees. He says, um, one of you is going to betray me. That would be shocking. And that would really, well, it would push my buttons to say the least. Now watch the response in verse 22. It says, being deeply grieved. They each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. So every one of them says, There's no way I'll do it. There's no way I do it. There's no way, God. There's, I should say, Jesus. There's no way I'd ever betray you. Hmm, that's interesting because we're going to get into that a little bit more in this Bible study as we progress and get to the point where Peter really, really, when he says, I, I would never deny it. But. We know that Jesus is specifically talking about one individual at that table, and that is Judas. Judas is scary. Verse 23. Now, Jesus is going to zero in on the betrayer. 
And he answered. Here's Jesus' response. When they go, not I, not I, Jesus. He, this is the person who's going to betray me, he who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Whoa. Now he gives specifics. Okay, you need to get, we need to get in our mind, get out of our modern day American way that we eat at a table because it, will, it won't work. See, we sit at a table, whether it holds six or eight or 12, and we all sit around this table in chairs. This is not the way they did it. They sat at a very low to the ground, U-shaped structured table and they would lay on their left side on pillows here propped up and they would reach for the food with their right arm. That's the way they, they laid there. So, Jesus is laying there on his left arm. We know from John, in John's gospel, that John is sitting to the right of Jesus or laying to the right of him because it says that John leaned back against Jesus' bosom. So he's leaning back into him. So John has to be on the right side. The question is, who's on the left side? Because when a person hosts a dinner back then, the person on the left side of the host, that's a guest of honor. Now think about that. If Jesus is going to reach and dip bread in the bowl with somebody, they got to be right next to him. Judas has to be the person right behind him to Jesus' left. That's wild. Because Jesus has placed Judas in the seat of honor. Isn't that amazing? The man that he knows is going to betray him. Judas is in the seat of honor. Well, what, what does that mean to us? Here's what I, I think strongly that it means this. It's like Jesus is saying, I love you, Judas. I love you. I, I, I still give you honor. I mean, some people have even gone to say that when they dip the morsel together to break bread with that person in the end is the seat of honor. It's unconditional acceptance. It's like when you break bread, you accept someone. That's wild. That, that's, that's amazing uh, that, that Jesus is doing this with a person he knows is going to sell him out. He knows he's going to do it that night. You know, what do we do with betrayers? What do we do? What's our attitude towards somebody that's betrayed us? It's an interesting thing to think about in comparison to what Jesus has done. Crazy, huh? Now, verse 24. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. Now, don't miss that one right there. Let me finish the verse and I'll come back to it. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now Jesus lays out a very tough thing. He says, the person who's going to betray me, it'd be better, and it's going to be so bad for that guy, it'd be better if he'd never been born. Oh my gosh. If I'm Judas sitting there, and I know I've already set up meetings to go to to sell Jesus out, what am I thinking at that moment? Now it says in verse 24, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Wow. 
Now you need to understand there are prophecies being fulfilled because in verse 23, backing up again, it says, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish, that is a prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Now in verse 24, he's saying, I'm going to go just the way it's been written of me. Now he's fulfilling prophecy. Friends, this book is a supernatural book. This could not have been written by humans. It's written by the hands of man, but inspired by God. There are so many prophecies written before and that are being fulfilled and they're, and they're continuing on. And there are so many Old Testament prophecies that are just amazing. They're amazing. They were written hundreds of years and thousands of years before it happened. And specifics are taking place. You can't tell me this was just a, a, a book written by men. No, it's written by men, but inspired by God. Verse 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, here's what he says. Watch what he tells Jesus. Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Now, first, why would... Judas even blurred out, surely it's not I. Why would he say that? Well, because they have both dipped in the dish together. So eyes are on Judas possibly. Or Judas feels very uncomfortable now because Jesus said, he who dips with me in the bowl and they've dipped together. Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Now notice something that you want to catch right now because it takes you into the heart and in the mind of the commitment level and the belief system of Judas. In verse 25, he says, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Back up to verse 22 in your Bible. When Jesus announced, one of you will betray me, notice they all began to say, surely not I, Lord. Oh. So now, we see the other 11 disciples, they believe Jesus is the Lord, not Judas. He says, surely not I, rabbi, teacher. He doesn't look at Jesus as some person sent from God. Hey, you're, just a, you're a good teacher. And so now you see, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what Judas really feels about Jesus, what he believes. You're a rabbi, you're a teacher, but you're not the Lord. So he's already redefined Jesus in order to betray him. There's a lot of redefining of who Jesus is over the centuries, and especially in the last couple centuries, especially in our day and age, they're always trying to redefine Jesus incorrectly. Jesus defined correctly is, He is God in the flesh, come from heaven to die on a cross and carry our sins, and be buried, and then rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven, and will come back again, in the rapture to rapture people out and then bring us back in the second coming. That's the definition of Jesus. He's the only God and the only way. Judas is redefining him. He's lowering him down. Verse 26. And by the way, when you lower Jesus down, your commitment level lowers down too. If you and I really believe he's God in the flesh, knows everything, called us by name, then our commitment level goes up. It's just that simple. Verse 26, while they were eating, so they're having a good time eating, but they're a little, a little disturbed. Jesus took some bread. <clears throat> and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Now, remember, 
they have been eating Passover here. <clears throat> In a Passover meal, the, the, the head of the meal, he would take the bread and he said, this is the bread of, the, bread of affliction which our fathers ate in Egypt. But Jesus is moving from Passover. Now he's instituting the Last Supper. We call it communion. The bread of affliction. And he starts off with the bread. He says, this is my body. Ah. So now he's making it about himself. This is about him now. He's making Passover about him. He's making the connection that he is our Passover. He is the one with the blood on the doorposts and lintels where death passes over our lives because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and the blood that he would shed soon on the cross. Now watch. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Hmm. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, a couple things I want to point out here. First off, notice sequence. He does bread, then he does the cup. And by the way, let me give you a quick side note. This is not literally his body and his blood. Get that out of your system now. It's not. Because if that were the case, then every time we took communion, we'd kill him again. And the New Testament says he died once for all. You don't kill him again. That's why when Moses struck that rock that second time, you're hitting Jesus again. You don't hit him again. He died once for all. That's it. Now, <clears throat> first the bread, then the cup. You know, you and I would have probably done it the reverse order. We would have said, well, we better, um, we better do the, the cup first, symbolic of the blood, with some, which means the cleansing process of our lives. We'd say, we've got to clean you up first, then you come be, be part of the body. And Jesus says, we're going to do the, the, the body first, the bread first. Why? Because he accepts us just the way we are when we come to him. And then he washes us in the blood as we put our faith in him. And he begins the process, the reclamation process of little by little, month by month, year by year, restoring us to the way we should be thinking, that what really a human is supposed to be like, because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29, 30. That's what's happening here. So it's the bread, then the blood. He accepts you just the way you are. Then he begins to wash you clean. Isn't that great? I like that a lot. Now, in verse 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Don't miss that. Um, these guys knew covenants. Luke calls it, Luke says that Jesus said, it's a new covenant. And it is. Because the covenant they've been living in was the if-then covenant. The covenant of the law, the works. That if I do this, then God does this and I'm in right standings with God. But Jesus offers a new covenant. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is Jesus dies on the cross. He sheds his blood, buried, rises from the dead. And you and I now, we just put our faith in him because he's done all the work. You see, we rest in our salvation. We don't work for it anymore. And so every time you get that 
feeling or that lie in your head that you've got to do a bunch of good works to feel like you're right before God as a follower of Christ. No, you're, you're believing a lie. You're believing a lie. He accepts you just the way you are. He did all the work. And He washes you clean by the blood. You and I are always in right standing with God. You know what that makes me want to do? Serve Him even more. Not because I have to. Not because, I'm, not because it makes me more Christian. Nothing can make me more Christian. It's a done deal. But because He's done all that for me and lifted all the bricks off my shoulders of sin and guilt, man, I'll serve Him forever. <laughs> no doubt, I will serve Him forever. And so should you. Now, <clears throat> verse uh, 29. But I say to you, I will not watch. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he says, I'm not going to drink this anymore with you until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. And we're going to see that at the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Verse 30. Now watch. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, now wait a minute here. You're telling me that Jesus, knowing that he's going to be betrayed, knowing that he's going to be tortured, knowing that he will die a torturous, gruesome death on a cross that next day, he worships. Yeah, he does. He begins to worship. Have you ever noticed that worship is not just words coming out of your mouth? It's an emotional experience. Have you ever noticed that? If you tend to get down, then you need to get into worship and begin to sing to God because it does lift the emotions. It lifts the spirit. Segue out of that one. When we're facing difficult times, he's facing crucifixion and he sings, he worships. What do you and I do when we're facing difficult times or in the middle of difficult times? Do we come to fellowship and worship or do we say, ah, you know, I just can't go today. I, I just can't do it. What do we do? That tells you where your maturity levels are and if you need to do some growing up. Because nothing should stop the follower of Christ from worshiping God. Now, I want you to notice something again in that verse, verse 30. It says, after singing a hymn. Now, notice it doesn't say, well, they had to sing to the point of exhaustion. You know, there's some places where they're going to make you sing in church for like an hour and a half. Yeah, you're just exhausted. You can't even stand anymore. They just sang a hymn. Now, I'm not saying we should sing one hymn in church or one song in church or it should be contemporary. I'm not saying any of that because that becomes legalism. But we shouldn't sing to the point of exhaustion. I mean, come on. Let's be real now with that one right there. Now, <clears throat> the question is, what are they singing? Well, during this time, what they would do in a traditional Passover, they would sing what's called the Passover Hallel. Now, these are like Psalm 115 or 16 through Psalm 118. Can I just show you one little piece of Psalm 118? These are words that Jesus would have been singing. So, turn to Psalm 118. This is a little piece of the psalm that he would have been singing. 
Psalm 118. If you have your Bible or if you're driving, just, you know, don't, don't do it, don't turn. Look at verse 22 and 20, 22 to 24 of Psalm 118. It says, The stone which the builders rejected, they're singing this now, has become the chief cornerstone. He's singing this about himself. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now watch verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Are you kidding me? He's walking to death and he's singing, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Could we do that? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's rejoicing and he's singing because you know what? He's following the will of his Father in heaven. You know what's fascinating? This is the Passover Hallel. Do you know that Satan, Lucifer's name in heaven, Isaiah chapter 14, around verse 12, you know his name, Hebrew name is Hallel? So when you sing Hallel, Hallelujah, <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh my gosh, it drives him insane because it reminds him of what he used to have when he was in heaven, his position. It reminds him of what he lost when he sinned. So when you sing hallelujah, you are singing to Yahweh God. But you are really upsetting the devil because it reminds him of everything that he's lost. Why do you think he doesn't want you to worship God and sing hallelujah? He doesn't want you rubbing it in his face. So let's sing and let's rejoice in God. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, they're on the move now. They're walking away from where they've had the, the, the Last Supper. They're going down in the Kidron Valley. Um, and now they're moving towards the Mount of Olives. It says, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, ah, Another prophecy going to be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? Another prophecy. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That's Zechariah 13 verse 7. Now being fulfilled that night. Another one. But he says, you'll all fall away from me. And the reason you're going to all fall away is because the shepherd, myself, I'm going to be struck down. And you're going to scatter. You're going to run. Listen. They're going to be fickle. But watch verse 32. <clears throat> but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to the galley. They're going to be fickle, but he will not forsake them. Aren't you glad? I am. You ever notice we can be so fickle in our faith? But he says, but after I've been raised, I'm going before you. In other words, I'm still leading you. I'm still your guy. I don't forsake you. Remember that, okay? When you get fickle, when you're kind of in and out with God, doesn't forsake you. He says, I'll go before you to Galilee. I'll set things straight. Verse 33. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter says, not me. I'm not like all these other losers here, Jesus. Don't you remember you changed my name to Rocky? It's, Yo, it's me Rocky. Rocky, you know? Remember? Remember? He's, gone. He's Rocky now. He's gone from you know, Simon to Peter. <clears throat> now, he says, so I'll never fall away. Hmm. Jesus says to him, 
Truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Huh. Mark will tell us from his account that, um, and we believe Mark got his account from Peter, that um, Jesus said, uh, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Now let me, there's two possibilities with this cock crowing twice that I want to give to you. The first possibility is, yeah, that it's a rooster, uh, and uh, which would be interesting because during Passover, no roosters and no hens were allowed in the city because they would drop droppings, and if you stepped on them, you'd be defiled, you'd be unclean, and you couldn't celebrate Passover. So for him to say before the rooster crows, they'd be thinking, there's no roosters in the city, it's Passover, Jesus. But if this is the case that it is a rooster, Jesus knows there's one out there because he knows all things. That's one possibility. Let me tell you the other a realistic possibility of what this rooster crows is all about twice. <clears throat> and that's this. <clears throat> um, the, the Romans, when they would change guard at, in the fortress of Antonia, which is on the Temple Mount on the northwest side, but when they would change guard, they changed at 3 a.m., in the morning. So, um, so what would happen is they would make the trumpet blast, uh, the trumpet call, and uh, that in Latin was called the Galicinium, um, which means cock crow. Isn't that fascinating? They'd blast a trumpet, change a guard, Galicinium means a cock crow. In times like Passover, when the city is swelled with people, they would blow it one way, cock crows one way, they turn so this side of town could hear it, and then they'd blow it the other way so that side of town could hear it. The cock crows twice, the Galicinium. Fascinating, huh? That's possibly what it is also. So take your pick either way, you know, who knows which way it went there, but uh, it did happen. I love background stuff, don't you? Now, Verse 35, when Jesus says after that, well, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows twice. Peter says, he's adamant now, says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Hmm. That is interesting. Isn't it easy, first thought, isn't it easy to make a promise when you're around all your Christian friends. Isn't it easy to be bold around all your Christian friends? It's easy. It's not so easy to be bold when it's on the line and the world's on, mowing down on you and here come the Roman guards or you're at your job and you're the only Christian there. It's not easy, huh? It's easy to talk big when we're in Christian. Oh, yeah. But let's see how bold you are when there's a bunch of unbelievers around. But here's what I find interesting about Peter. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny. Never. What does Peter have? He has blind spots. So does every human being on the planet, including you and including me. He doesn't see some things in his life. See, not only is Jesus exposing Judas' treachery and betrayal, he's exposing Peter's fear. 
There comes times Jesus exposes us to us because we have blind spots. You know what's interesting with the blind spot? We're so good at seeing the blind spots of others and wanting to call it out, but we don't see our own. I've, uh, I've had this thought recently. See if you think it's funny or fun. What if everyone on Facebook who wanted to call out everybody and I don't like what they're doing or this politician or that person there and this, what if instead of pointing out everybody's faults that they see, why don't you list your 25 ugliest sins that you commit right now and point out your own blind spots? Do that and leave everyone else out of the equation. Oh, not so tough now, huh? <laughs> Here's the thing about blind spots. Jesus said this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye? It's fascinating. But then he has, he goes, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now listen to what he said. He said, deal with yourself. Get all the logs out of your own eye. Deal with all your blind spots. Because once you deal with your blind spots, you will see clearly. And it doesn't mean like, now you can go tell that person what the problem. No, it means now you will see with the eyes of God through grace and mercy and forgiveness. That sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah. Deal with your blind spots. I'll deal with my blind spots. Quit dealing with everybody else's blind spots that you think you need to point out to the world. List your own faults and sins on Facebook if you want to be honest. You know? Uh, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Ooh, Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now Gethsemane means oil press. It's where they'd take, bring the olives and they'd have these um, made out of, out of stone, these big round um, kind of uh, pans with a hole in the middle and they'd, they'd, and they'd have other holes. They'd put the olives there and they'd, they'd push um, the big millstone around and it would press down on the olives and all, every last bit of oil would be crushed out of those olives. Jesus is coming to Gethsemane, the place, the press, the place of crushing. Now his life will begin to be crushed. And it says in Isaiah 53, prophetically, he will be crushed for our iniquities. Ah, the crushing begins right now in Gethsemane. It's a beautiful picture, but there's some amazing, beautiful pictures here. You see, <clears throat> he comes into a garden. Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, is called the last Adam. He's the only hope. After him, ain't nobody else. The first Adam of Adam and Eve, he lost the battle in a garden. Jesus comes as the last Adam to fight for me in a garden. See, the first garden of Eden was Adam's home turf. He sins, he loses, he hands the world over. So Jesus has to come on Satan's home turf, which was the world at that time. It was handed over to him. So here comes Jesus into a garden to do battle for us as the last Adam. How cool is that? All right. Verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Now, 
grieved means hurt with sorrow, and distressed means troubled. So he's feeling it. He's feeling it big time now because he knows where he, what he's heading into. I want you to notice as we uh, read as these verses as we go, nowhere do you find Jesus playing the victim. Poor me. Oh, why does that have to be? Nowhere do you find that. You know why? Because victim mentality gets you nowhere. All that does is you lying to yourself saying that life isn't fair and everyone owes you. No one owes you anything. They don't owe me anything. You work for what you get. You apply yourself and you do not sit back and wallow in some kind of feel sorry for me. He doesn't play the victim. And don't you do that either. You get up. And you make something of your life and something of your situation. Get up. Um, <clears throat> then he said to them, verse 38, My soul is deeply grieved. Oh, he said, here it comes again. To the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You know what I like about that? I like the fact that um, <clears throat> he's not hiding what he's feeling inside. You know, let me talk to men. Most of us men, game face, we're not going to, how you doing? Good. We could be dying on the inside. But he's sharing. Here's what's cool. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, he hid. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the last Adam, bears his soul. What a contrast again, huh? I like that. Verse 39. And he went a little beyond them. I like that statement there too, because Jesus is always going a little farther than us right? Always. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. <clears throat> Two things there really quickly. First off, there's no other way of salvation. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. There's no other road. These days, you know, with all the pluralism, they're trying to say that, you know, all roads lead to God and whatever God you believe in. No, no. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will, because he knows it's the only way. He's the only God. He's the only way, and it has to be this way. And by the way, second thought in there, yet not as I will, but as you will. Isn't that the correct way to pray? Instead of demanding from God, do this, do this, do this, who in the world do we think we are? <laughs> oh, he says, not as I will. He's asking God to change the program, but, he says, but not as I will. See, you can ask God for stuff, but you know, temper it with, but not my will, God. I want to make sure this is your will. I want to make sure this is what you want for my life. And I think that's a smart way to pray. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Great! And said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch of me for one hour? Now, <clears throat> why does he single out Peter? He says, said to Peter. I think because Peter said, I'll never deny you. I'll always be with you. Here I am. I think, Peter, look at you now. You know, you talked really big, but now you've fallen asleep. You couldn't keep watch of me for one hour? <clears throat> now, let, let's, let's be clear about something in life right now. 
you better, if you're going to make it in life, you better embrace disappointment from time to time. Let me zero in even further on that. All relationships, every friendship you have, every relationship you have, your marriage, all of them all have wrinkles in them. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <clears throat> all relationships, including marriages, have failings, but that doesn't mean they have to fail. You got to learn to embrace disappointment. People, including the ones that you love and they love, they're going to let you down from time to time. It's just what it is. We are humans. Why do we expect everyone to be perfect? We don't even expect ourselves to be perfect. If you could learn, if I could learn that all relationships have wrinkles and embrace disappointment at time, we could work through our relationships and not have another broken relationship that we run from. Embrace disappointment, my friend. Jesus says, you couldn't watch me one hour? He's embracing disappointment. And he's not going to run from Peter. Verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh my gosh, isn't that so true? That the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. How many times do you go, yeah, Lord, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, and then we do the wrong thing. <laughs> Thank God he doesn't abandon us on those days. Um, verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father... If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. <clears throat> he makes a decision. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden, he made a decision that resulted in damnation. This last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane makes a decision results in salvation. Well, our decisions are really important, aren't they? <clears throat> I have a big question. I thought about this. And I wrote myself a note in the Bible maybe a year ago because I thought about, you know, how in the world could, you know, he go through with this, knowing what's coming? Let me give you one thought I had on it. Um, <clears throat> Jesus created hell. Did you know that? But it was created for the devil and his angels. So he knows everything about hell. If Jesus knows everything about hell and the eternal torture of it, how much motivation, based on his love for mankind that he created, how much motivation would that give him to go through with it to try to save people from that? I think a lot. He knows how bad it is, but he doesn't want anybody going there. So I'll go through with this, he says. I'll do it. Verse 43, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He finds them sleeping again. Have you ever noticed that when you're on your phone, you can be on your phone reading all kinds of articles, talking to everybody on Facebook, reading all these things that people write on Facebook and Instagram, whatever else, but the moment you open a Bible, have you ever noticed that? Well, you know, Satan loves to turn us off from the Bible. Oh, you're good. You're poppies, poppies, like in the Wizard of Oz. You're getting sleepy, you know. But everything, oh, my, I could stay on my phone all day long reading stuff. But you open that Bible, all of a sudden you get sleepy, huh? That's a spiritual attack right there, my friends. Um, <coughs> verse 
verse uh, 44. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So he repeats it, he repeats it again. Now I have a, a thought. Maybe, just maybe, Peter failed here to stay awake. And therefore, <clears throat> he's going to fail again in the near future when Judas comes to the people. Hear what I just said? Maybe his, um, his failure to stand up for Jesus is based on the earlier failure of falling asleep. Failure can breed failure, can't it? Hmm. No. Verse 45 and 6, and I'm going to finish here. This is my last two verses. Um, <clears throat> then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hours at hand, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. You ever wonder how Jesus said that? You think he said, and it really depends on how you view Jesus. Some of us think he's such a mean taskmaster, angry with you. And you would think he comes up and says, are you still sleeping and resting? Are you kidding? I don't think he says it that way. I think he says, are you still sleeping and resting? You need to get your view of Jesus right. He says, I'm being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Verse 46, get up. Let us be going. He's even including these guys, even in their failure. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The guy who's going to betray me is here. <clears throat> Think about this. In the moment of temptation, here's my last thought. In the moment of temptation, the disciples are sleeping. And while they're sleeping, the enemy, the devil, is plotting. Never forget that. You have kids? If you fall asleep on them spiritually and you don't pray for those kids, the enemy's plotting. He's always plotting. If you fall asleep in your spiritual life and you take your kids out of fellowship and church, you fall asleep. The enemy's plotting and he's plotting and he's plotting and he wants those kids. Don't forget that. In the moment of temptation, they fall asleep and the enemy is plotting.